there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Canaveri Bolton Valentius about her awesome new book, The Lost History of the New Madrid Earthquakes. This came out with University of Chicago Press in 2013. Now, you'll hear in a few moments about my great admiration, um, not only for Canaveri's narrative style, for her skill as a historian, for her amazingly rich and committed archival work, but also for her footnotes. Uh, this is a book that is such a pleasure to read, not only because you'll learn so much about an episode of and reverberations from part of American history that took place around the 1811 and 1812 Mississippi Valley earthquakes that was completely transformative, but that has left little to no record in the historical consciousness of many of us, even um, many of us who grew up in the States. It also is a book that was clearly written by somebody who loved their topic and had a lot of fun writing about it. And those are the best kinds of books to read. And so I'll uh, keep this short so that you'll get right to the interview. But this is just to say this is a fabulous book. It's a wonderful book to read, as well as um, a book to learn a lot from. And I hope you enjoy the book. I certainly did. um, And I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with Canaveri Bolton Valentius about her great new book, The Lost History of the New Madrid Earthquakes. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Canaveri, and thank you so much for making time with me during what I know is a very busy time during the semester to talk with me about your awesome new book. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Carla. So, Canaveri, could you start us off by talking a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to the field of working on the history of science in in early America? You know, I grew up as a child of the Mississippi Valley. I'm from this part of the world. I grew up as a city kid, but in a largely rural state in Arkansas, hearing about earthquakes as a, a kind of nervous laughter punchline, something that everybody knew had happened, only we didn't quite know it. And they were a really big deal, or were they really? And they were something you should pay attention to, kind of, but it wasn't really clear what it would mean to pay attention to them. So a lot of this project, as I end up writing about in the book itself, was for me a real interesting process of kind of going back to who I used to be before I went off and got a PhD and, you know, got Latin letters after my name. So let's talk a little bit about that for a moment. So how does this project relate to and can you situate it within the work that you were doing prior to working on the earthquakes while you were getting the letters after your name and um, (laughs) while you were developing an interest in this larger context of um, American science and medicine? So how does this fit into the larger trajectory of the work that you've been doing? So I was trained as a historian of American medicine and science um, with an emphasis on the medicine. And my first book, which I published in 2002, is called The Health of the Country. And that book came out of my reading a bunch of stuff that people had written, um, mostly white people moving across North America, mostly moving west in the early 19th century. And they would look at environments around them and say, this is a healthy country or this is an insalubrious valley. And I said, why? Why were they saying that? And I It took me a long time to figure it out, and I wrote a book to answer that question, which was that people thought that land had health in the same ways and for the same processes as human beings. So out of that kind of sense that ordinary Americans 
had in the early 19th century very strong ideas about the way the world worked that were articulated in a lot of their ordinary writings and and I think their conversations as well, though those are harder to capture, but that had been very insufficiently recognized in a lot of the ways we write history. I mean, the fact that these conversations about land having a health like a human body, that was everywhere in 19th century writings, but I couldn't find any explanation for it in any of the history I was reading. And that really made me think about, well, what what, what else are we not seeing that's right there in front of us? Mm-hmm. And I got interested in the, the, in a sense, in environmental terms, the humid tree zone west of the Mississippi. So when we think about North American West, we often think rightly about big open spaces and arid environments, and and then out to the coasts. And and I'm really interested in this the the area of forests before you hit the plains and what happens when people are moving boldly into the West and getting stuck in the swamps. And it's really the swamps of this area that got me into this earthquake book. Wow. So that was actually going to be my new, or uh, my next question. How did you come to focus on a book-length study of this particular set of earthquakes? And um, I, I'll mention again that it's the new Madrid earthquakes. And I had been in my head pronouncing it wrong um, while I was reading the book. So how did you come to this? And can you talk a little bit about the fact that it's new Madrid, um, as you very helpfully told me earlier, and not new Madrid? <laughs> So it's New Madrid because uh, that's the way English speakers pronounced the town that was named for the Spanish capital. It was Nouvelle Madrid, and that was part of the very convoluted early European and Native American and American history of this region. So in this really interesting era of the late 18th century, when there are Spanish powers and French powers and Osage powers um, and some straight Caddo people, contesting for who's in charge of the middle Mississippi Valley. And so Americans are um, somewhat feebly attempting to make farms in that era. Um, this, this town along the Mississippi, this little bitty trading post along the Mississippi river um, in what's now the, what's called the Missouri boot heel. So if you could kind of picture on an American map where the States of Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois don't all quite come together, but if they did, that's where I'm talking about. That's the epicenters of what I came to find out were very large earthquakes of the early 19th century. But I came to them in a somewhat roundabout way because um, I am married to a very good somebody who at that point was a very good project manager. And I said to Matt Valentius, I want to write another book. But my first book was all about these amorphous cultural ideas. And that's all very well. And I'm real proud of what I did in that. I think it's a good book. But I want to write a book with stuff that happens where there are (laughs) events and I can tell a story about specific things and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And he said, okay, good. Let's talk about that. And then that week we had a fellow historian come over for dinner, Jeannie Wayne, historian of Arkansas. And we got to talking over dinner and having a few drinks. And she mentioned something about these earthquakes. And after dinner, Matt looks at me and says, so. Has anyone written a book about those earthquakes in the middle Mississippi Valley? And there was a whole lot actually about the swamps of Arkansas, Missouri, that I found really interesting, much to the great frustration of my dear and patient spouse, who very much (laughs) wants me to study Caribbean history or the history of any place, you know, with an ocean and cool breezes. But I'm really interested in these hot, humid, mid-American swamps. And so that's where I got interested in this. And Matt said to me, hey, why don't you do a kind of short, real interesting book, you know, none of this tortured academic stuff. Why don't you write, in a sense, a kind of coffee table introduction 
to environmental history that would take this natural disaster and introduce it to people. It'll be real short. It'll be a real popularly oriented book. And I said, great, that's a fabulous idea. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and that was, um, you, you know, the child that we had at that point um, was I could hold in one hand and he is now almost my size. Right. So that was quite some time ago. And what happened was that I got researching these earthquakes and found that it what I couldn't just write a history of what had happened in the past. I had to write a history of how we'd come to understand that past in radically different ways over the ensuing 200 years. And that moment happened on an airplane. <laughs> That's great. And in fact, the book itself is all about the production and then the forgetting and then the kind of remembering, but in a different way of knowledge surrounding these new Madrid earthquakes in 1911 and or rather 1811 and 1812 in the middle Mississippi Valley. Okay. That's right. So stuff that happens and a story, let's get right into it because this is in fact how the book begins and it's fabulous. The book begins with Davy Crockett and his hunting dogs chasing a bear in 1826. It's this fabulous scene. The bear gets caught in an earthquake crack, an effect of the great Mississippi Valley earthquakes of 1811 and 1812 that the book is going to focus on. These are now known as we've been alluding to as the new Madrid earthquakes. So the book is going to look at some key questions surrounding um, what this really wonderful account of Davy Crockett and his dogs and the bear brings us into. So first, what happened and why? And this is actually a much more complicated question than might originally seem. And we can talk a little bit about that. Second, how did these events matter at the time and how and why were they so completely forgotten in the years that followed? Third, how did scientists come to revisit the issue of these earthquakes after hundreds of years of neglecting them? And fourth, and this is um, really interesting from the perspective of the engagement of the historian with public policy, how should we understand the threat of future earthquakes in this seismic zone and perhaps beyond right now? And so the book is going to touch on and explore each one of these questions and in the, um, in the process of doing that, introduce us to some really fabulous sources, some really fascinating people, and incidentally, some really hilarious footnotes, and I will get to those as well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the really wonderful things about the book, as I um, briefly mentioned just before, is that it takes us into some really interesting sources in the history of science. And the first chapter, chapter one, A Great Commotion, is a really wonderful example of this. Chapter one takes us through the events of the earthquakes and it sort of introduces to us how a at least one possible uh, contemporary would have experienced them and immediate perceptions of them by following the account of a river traveler named William Lee Pierce. So can you start us off as we get into the real sort of meat of this book by introducing William Lee Pierce and talking a little bit about this account and um, how you came to decide to make this the focus of this chapter? Well, I made this the focus of this chapter because there are explosions and <laughs> And the Mississippi River floods and it wipes out islands and it goes retrograde. The Mississippi River current is actually forced backwards and trees, enormous old growth trees are snapped off mid trunk. And there are these um, what, what get called at the time sand volcanoes, this uh, what we would now call a, a phenomenon of liquefaction where the, the 
the underlayer underneath the clay overlayer of the Mississippi soil gets put under incredible seismic pressure and this slurry of sand and water shoots up into the air and makes a conical deposit known as a sand blow. And we know all this because William Lee Pierce was like a whole lot of people in North America in the early, in the early 19th century, in the 18 teens. He was young, didn't have a lot of assets, had an education and was traveling. And he was traveling with a river convoy, like many people were in general in his time period and at that specific moment, traveling down the river with trade goods to this international port at New Orleans. And instead of having a peaceful and profitable journey, he um, fell into a maelstrom when a series of earthquakes shattered the night that he was sailing down under, he was pulling down the river with a, a, a crew and huge noises and smells. They described flashes of light in the air, water, um, rushing wind, lightning in the sky, a whole kind of, as they put it, commotion in the earth erupted around them. Now, what's interesting to me is that a lot of those symptoms of the earth don't sound to me particularly like an earthquake. And part of what I had to confront as somebody who, you know, like many of your listeners probably has been in earthquakes, is that my whole experience of an earthquake as a reasonably scientific, literate, modern person was totally different in many respects from that of William Lee Pierce and his contemporaries. That for them, the smells of the air were an important aspect of understanding this event. And you had to understand the smells and the flashes in the sky and the role of electricity and lightning to be able to say what had just happened to you and to figure out that you were going to name it as earthquake. So I use the story that William Lee Pierce really made his reputation on after he got down to New Orleans in one piece, just barely. He wrote a long narrative of the earthquake and of the earthquakes and their various shocks on the river as he was traveling. And I use that as a thread to introduce us modern people to some kinds of events that might seem like they'd be similar. Many of us have felt seismic movement before. And yet he experienced them in ways that I think would sound, would feel very unfamiliar to a lot of us. So he's the way that I, I try to get us all into the language and the concerns and the whole narrative style of the time. And I spend a whole lot of the rest of the book explaining how accounts like that, long descriptions with lots and lots of detail and quantified information and actually very precise natural scientific kind of description – why that would count as an actual description of a real event when William Lee Pierce wrote it, why it would be completely illegitimate as a piece of scientific evidence by the late 19th and the early 20th century, and then why, because of some real interesting changes in modern seismology, his account is now part of scientific evidence again. So I try to tell the story of William Lee Pierce and make it familiar to us so that we understand also how it could become strange and then be rediscovered again. Great. And um, as you've just uh, brought up a little bit, one of the really interesting things that you talk about in the book that relates to this larger issue of who, who got to witness these, um, these earthquakes and whose accounts actually counted and in what ways later on, you mentioned that Pierce's account was typical for this time and that it didn't really include details about the Native American experience of the quakes. And the book is really careful to not just take uh, Pierce's account as somehow solitary or, the, or rather representative 
of the wide range of ways that people, lots of different kinds of people experienced the quakes and came to be integrated into or not later accounts of, and sometimes much later accounts of what was actually happening and why and how that was relevant to different contemporary contexts in the hundreds of years um, after. That's right. And so part of what's interesting to me about William Lee Pierce's account is that He's, it's the kind of account that in our present day we usually take as the account. Like that's what it was, right? That's what the earthquake is. And I spend um, really a lot more time than I think I would actually care to admit uh, digging through really quite truly obscure sources to try to find some of the other people who have described this quake. And what I came up with was a sense that these quakes actually mattered a whole lot to a whole lot of different communities. They mattered in terms that were religious So they were a powerful event in white and black spirituality of the middle Mississippi Valley. They were part of what contemporaries called the Great Revival, camp meetings um, where people were were convicted in the Lord and felt God's spirit and and resolved to do right and and to be um, and and to be uh, to be to to turn toward God in their daily life and work. These were very powerful uh, spiritual events that also had a real physical ramification. But these earthquakes also mattered to Native American communities. So there were Indian tribes living along the river, and a lot of them had just moved there. These were folks who were fleeing and getting away from the Americans who had taken over a lot of what's now the southeast, who were essentially voting with their feet saying we want to go someplace where you know we will not be where our land will not be continuously taken away from us by Americans. And they crossed the Mississippi River and set up new villages. And part of what I find in this book is that there's a whole lot of evidence that this part middle Mississippi Valley, which is really about as podunk as you can imagine in a lot of our historical accounts, right? Just really not seen as a real center of trade or diplomacy or anything else, much interesting happening at the early 19th century or later was in fact exactly that, that there were areas um, along the middle Mississippi where there were very vibrant trading communities, extensive diplomacy, a lot of intercultural interaction. And all of that was disrupted by the quakes. And we haven't seen that because our contemporary understanding of that region is shaped by a physical environment, you know, the environmental geography that was created by the earthquakes. So we look now, we contemporary Americans and even we historians look at the middle Mississippi Valley and say, well, that was just a bunch of swampland. Well, that's true after 1811 and 1812. It was not so before. And this is actually a beautiful way to segue into chapter two, because this transformation is what chapter two is all about. So earthquakes and the end of the New Madrid, New Madrid, forgive me, hinterland <laughs> in chapter two. This chapter looks at not just um, the vibrant settlement that had happened in the region, but also the ways that the region was really rich in animal and plant life, the ways that it was I think, um, as you describe it, a riverine highway, a really major place of trade and exchange and connection that was all transformed as a result of the earthquakes. And you describe in this chapter the ways that the earthquakes transformed this to what's called a sunk country, swampland, where what had been wet was dry and vice versa. And all of this bustling exchange was really brought to a halt. So can you talk a little bit about what was happening? How did this transformation take place as a result of these earthquakes? What were the major changes that happened that 
that turned this from what had been a bustling area to this kind of a hinterland? So this is so interesting because it comes back to the explosions in the ground and the river. So there, there are significant topographic effects of the New Madrid earthquakes. And I found textual record of this, but a, a number of scientists have found many other kinds of scientific evidence that this area, especially um, what's now – what we now term one branch of the St. Francis River was a major – kind of parallel to the Mississippi for much of the late 18th and into the very early 19th century. And this was the way in which you'd go up and down the Mississippi much more easily than the Mississippi itself. With the quakes, a lot of the region literally changed level, became lower. And so areas that were braided streams became swamps. And that might sound like a real kind of similar environment, except that you can canoe streams. And swamps with a lot of downed trees are much more challenging. So areas that had been game rich that might be subject to seasonal overflow, but that had that channels as a river became the backwaters that they're known of later on. And that's significant in part because of the, what it means for the change in the people living there. And, oh, can I tell you about one of the really cool things I got to do in this project? Please. Because I got to make a historic discovery. I got to go find new primary sources, which for any non-historically minded people listening is sort of like, that's the nirvana as a historian, right? Is, wow, I found new records that let me tell a new story. And I did. Um, With the help of the Missouri Department of Local Records, a really far-seeing civic organ, you know, part of the the state of Missouri, um, sent field worker named Joan Fieser with me down to the New Madrid County Courthouse, where we were told that there were no records of er the early town of New Madrid, that they had been burned up in a fire or sunk in a flood. And actually, the the piling up of those natural disasters was what suggested to me that perhaps um, nobody actually knew what had happened to them, (laughs) right? Since you can easily be sunk in a flood or burned in a fire, but both of those simultaneously are a little hard to imagine. <laughs> so we um, they, we were told that there was nothing, nothing at all. And I was sitting looking through this big old dusty ledger book that they've got there. That is where all the land deeds and probate cases, that is the, the records of people who die without a will. What, what's all the stuff they own? That's called their probate. All these probate cases were listed in this book and they're all listed. You know, they're very recent ones over the past, say, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And those are real important in an agricultural re- area because it's, you know, how do you prove who owns what? And I'm looking through and there were a couple of records that said things like, you know, so-and-so from the 1950s, 1952, 53, so-and-so. And then there'd be one that had this weird kind of number beside it that would say something like 1814. I think, huh. A couple pages later, I'd see 1831. Many, many, many pages later, we found a 1816 and a 1803. And uh, I took a look at this and said, um... Could I possibly see those? No, 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 no. We're very busy. We're very busy. I said, yeah, but can I, can I just see a couple of those files with those particular numbers? And they said, okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll bring them up for you. <gasps> and those were records from 1813 and 1816 and 1803. Those were very early probate cases and other court cases that had somehow gotten you know, scattered or not filed right originally, and as they were found, some responsible clerk had just filed them in with the stuff from the middle and late 20th century. So it was all there. 
an incredibly rich probate court probate record um, and court case record that hadn't been thought to be there, but was there in plain sight. And it's now, through a real innovative and just terrific program, been digitized. So it's available to people who don't have to go to the county courthouse to find it, but can find it through the Missouri Digital Records Project. And this is actually described in one of my favorite footnotes of many favorite footnotes in the book. And I'll just say for um, for listeners, you need to go out and get a copy of the book if, if for no other reason than just to have the chance to read the footnotes. <laughs> I mean, they include everything from describing this account to describing puns, historical puns by some of your actors, to descriptions of a case of Billy Beer that your father... <laughs> in the basement to a description of New Zealand hail cannons. I mean, it's just fabulous. Um, how did you, while we're, you know, on, while I, I actually have brought us to this topic, right. how did you decide to use the footnotes in that way? Just as a kind of um, conversational footnote that we can have, because as, um, as uh, or from the perspective of somebody who really loves thinking about books as objects, as material objects, and as products of deliberate decisions, that was one of the most wonderful, wonderful things for me to find. And um, I'm always interested in how that kind of decision comes about. So how did you decide to use the footnotes in that? way when you were putting the manuscript together? Well, I've got this house full of children and every year we, um, I make them on a, go on an annual pilgrimage down to the ancestral homelands of the Mississippi Valley. And so we spend a lot of days all together as a family in the large family van. And so we must have literature and we read a lot of books out loud. And so we were reading recently the fabulous, fabulous books by Carrie Pratchett. And if your listeners don't know, Carrie Pratchett has an incredibly interesting series of so-called young adult books that are just some of the best fiction for kids out there, and especially because it's got a real interesting girl protagonist, which is sorely lacking in a lot of fiction for young people and fiction generally. So we're reading Terry Pratchett in the large family van um, while people are complaining that the middle part of the country is really boring to drive across. And one of the things I love about Terry Pratchett is that he has these fabulous footnotes that go on musings and make puns and just sort of comment on the text at hand. And sometimes the story that's going on is is very serious and quite profound. And the, I mean, I, Terry Pratchett's fiction, I find in some cases extremely moving, but the footnotes are just hilarious. And I thought, you know, I get a lot of flack about footnotes in my family because, you know, I'm the only historian in the large family van and there's a lot of complaining about how much time mama spends on the footnotes. And I thought, you know, I could make a case. I could do footnotes like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I decided I made an executive decision that I was going to separate out the scholarly apparatus, which is the stuff that, you know, you, Carla and I like to look at like, oh, where'd they get that stuff and where can I find it? And can I check if it's true? And is it spelled right? And all that stuff's in the book and it's in the back. But then I wanted to be to share with my reader some of the incredibly cool stuff that I ran across in the course of looking for this book. And Terry Pratchett is my inspiration. That's awesome. I knew, see, I knew there was going to be some sort of story behind that. And I also, Carla Nappi, really enjoyed those footnotes as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted. So coming back to the earthquakes and their, um, and the hinterland. So after we have this chapter, that talks about this transformation into some country, the flight from the territory as people are evacuating, and um, also incidentally, or perhaps not just incidentally, but as an important part of the story, you talk about this flight actually spurring or increasing war between um, various Indian communities. So that's an important part of this story. We come to a chapter that looks at 
an aspect of um, the response to an engagement with these earthquakes that you talked about earlier in our conversation. And this is the kinds of movements and revivals that were spurred by the quakes, especially in Indian communities. So this looks at three um, different cases or three specific and interrelated cases of revival and different kinds of responses in different Indian communities. And the first one that you look at here is the formation of a kind of political and cultural confederation led by two very famous brothers, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. That's right. Sometimes known as the Shawnee prophets. So can you say a little bit about this? Because you mentioned, um, well, and specifically, you mentioned in the book that Tecumseh has become very famous for a prophecy that he made um, about these earthquakes. But you go into, um, you kind of re-envision that story and, and tell us what's happening in much more detail and in a really fascinating part of this story. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, because a, a lot of folks, if they know about the New Madrid earthquakes, it's because of this prophecy that Tecumseh makes, that the the earthquakes are the sign from, um, you know, the maker of the universe that Indians should unite as Indians against the Americans. So it's a very radical pan-tribal call to unite, not just as Shawnees or as Delawares or as Cherokees, but to come together to resist in religious and political and in military terms the American territorial encroachment upon Indian, you know, culture and, um, and lands. And that he says that you know the great spirit will send these earthquakes and I, I you will see the the truth of my words historians and contemporary americans read that and it sounds like this really nice kind of quaint colorful story about indianness aren't those people interesting back in the past where they were smellier than we were and thought all those quaint things and what i find is that Predictions about earthquakes weren't just a one-off. They weren't just a one thing that somebody did or was said to have done, but were consistent with decades of political organizing, to use in, you know, the, the way we would call it, right? Is that these two brothers, in their advocacy, used naturalistic prophecy and a, an apocalyptic prophecy repeatedly and about many kinds of events, and that was seen as a very important part of their whole call. So it's woven into their whole movement of spiritual resistance. And it's not just in their particular movement, but it's also among the Creeks and the Cherokees that these earthquakes are very powerful events in both spiritual and political terms. So one of the things that I found I find really interesting about these earthquakes of 1811 and 1812 is that we can use them to get a whole glimpse of what was going on in North America. There was trade, there was diplomacy, there was a lot of mobility, there were powerful religious movements that had important political and military repercussions, and there were a variety of groups of people who were all struggling to make sense of both the changing political parameters around them and even in some senses the changing physical world around them. Great. Thank you so much. So that chapter looks um, not just, just to sort of let listeners know, um, they're just a richness of that chapter. It looks not just at what's happening with these brothers and sort of go, going into, um, including going into the details and the texture of the emergence of this prophecy, right? I'm going to stamp my foot on the ground and then 
something's going to happen, right? And an earthquake. Right. <laughs> Surprise. The earth will shake. Right. The earth will shake. And the earth did, in fact, shake. Um, but you also go into detail looking at the religious revival among the Cherokee people in 1811 and 1812 and how that is becoming linked up with these earthquakes and also the ways that the earthquakes contributed to civil and military strife and fighting among the Creeks. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this um, chapter that really, I think, expands or will expand for a lot of readers what they think about when they think about American history in this period and whose voices um, count um, and how, what we need to know in order to understand and who we need to know from in order to understand um, the richness of what's happening and who it's happening to in this period. So it's a really great chapter. <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that's real interesting to me is that there are really, this is where we see powerful connections and discontinuities between Indian and non-Indian experience. Because for everybody who felt them, the earthquakes were a powerful spiritual event. And in the next chapter, I talk about the earthquakes as an event in American spirituality and as part of this movement of the Great Revival I was talking about a minute ago. So there are powerful connections that movement of the natural world, quite literally movement, is is you know that prompts everybody to think about their relationship with their creator and their spiritual life but then there are also big differences because for a number of different people in different indian groups the earthquakes were a, a part of a political call and a, you know it was both political and spiritual to unite or to take action Whereas for the Americans, white and black, who felt them, it was far more individual. It was about one's own relationship to one's creator. And, you know, were you justified by faith? Had you come to a right understanding of God as your savior? And that that distinction really powerfully separates some of the communities that we see. That's great. And you actually look in really interesting detail at um, some of these individual but also collective experiences in the next chapter where the centrality of bodily sensation to the experience and understanding of earthquakes in the 19th century really takes on central focus. This is another really fascinating chapter that looks, among other things, at the human body, but also um, perhaps the animal body, and we also talk about that a little bit later, as a seismic instrument. So because this is so fascinating, I think especially from the perspective of anyone interested in bodies and history, embodiment in history, history of and with bodies, etc., etc., um, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that early Americans physically felt earthquakes as bodily disturbance? Like what were some of the physical manifestations of um, earthquake response in this period among Americans that you look at it in this chapter? You know, I was just flabbergasted that I would open up newspaper accounts or, or personal letters from these dates in the in the winter of 1811 and 1812. And people would say, yesterday, an amazing thing happened. I was sitting at my table and all of a sudden I became ill and my body was jolted and um, I thought I was having a fit and I didn't know what to do. And I would think, wait, was it, that's how they lead off an earthquake? And then I would read another account and they would say, yesterday I was woken from a sound sleep and all through my body I felt thrills and jolts. And that's how they described an earthquake. So to describe an earthquake, a lot of people didn't start with the surrounding world. They started with what did it feel like? That your body was the way in which you would communicate how exciting and uh, frightening and off-putting this set of events were. 
And the joltness and the shocks of a quake were a way to communicate to others the severity of it, just like the talking about animals and their reactions was. But at the same time, that's, that people feeling a jolt or a shock connects earthquake experience in ways that really surprised me, both to religion and, get this, to science. Mm-hmm. Because the other things, there were other powerful forces that jolted people in the early 19th century. You know what they were? Tell us. They were God and electricity. Mm-hmm. So people were being jolted in the 19th century by the power of the Holy Spirit in their religious movements. Um, and that's also true in, that's true of, of Indian groups and of white people and of black people. And there were many people who had seen or even taken part in this really exciting kind of show in early American culture, which was the traveling electrical showman. So even many people off in really small little frontier towns might have had a traveling lecture come through showing them this exciting new science of the electrical fluid. And as you all may be aware, if you've been to a science museum recently with anybody under the age of 10, electricity can make for some really cool effects, right? You can feel it in a dark room. You can see it spark. You can kill small animals with it. And back in the 19th century, that was quite the party trick, right? Little little birds and frogs got, you know, done, done off with by the score. Um, and that feeling and witnessing of shocks and jolts gave people conceptual resources to think through what it meant when the earth would move. So their theorizing went kind of in two directions. One is this is a spiritual event because this feels like the power of God and it must be telling me something important about my spiritual life. But it also took them into scientific theorizing. If this feels like, if this is a jolt and it feels like electricity, then earthquakes must have something electrical about them. Maybe they're caused by electricity in some ways because that's what they feel like to us. So people's sensations within their bodies were, in the early 19th century, an important element of theorizing about how the very world worked around them. And this is great because this even um, this kind of harkens back to something er- that happens earlier in the book. And in fact, the first chapter of the book that we didn't um, didn't quite talk about yet, but that I'll just mention for listeners who might be interested in the history of metaphor. And that is, this is another example of something that recurs throughout the book, which is observers trying to make sense of the world around them and transformations therein, and transformations concurrently in their bodies by recourse to description in terms of things that were more familiar to them. So metaphors of various sorts. And we see this, um, as you show us really beautifully in the account that opens the first chapter of the book as well. That's right. When Davy Crockett, when his his dogs get this bear and the bear is running through the woods in West Tennessee and it, um, it goes down into what he calls an earthquake crack. That is a crevice that had been opened by these 1811, 1812 events. And um, and he and he, they, they, he gets the bear. Davy Crockett crawls down into this crack while his dogs occupy the bear from the other side and knifes it through the kidneys, kills the bear. And then the next day, his hunting partner catches up with him with his pack of dogs and says, basically, were you out of your mind? 
sprawled down in this earthquake crack. You could have been killed. And Davy Crockett says this wonderful thing. He's this backwoods hunter, right, with his bloody hunting knife. He says, you know, right then and there, the earth started to shake that night, and we were rocked about like we were in a cradle. Mm. And that evocative language of being rocked like a cradle that's that's very typical of the kinds of ways in which people discussed earthquakes. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I just love that. As a, I mean, you could do a whole history of metaphor here by looking through the various cases um, in this book in which people are doing that. So really another point where I just will say really great stuff. <laughs> so, so you mentioned um, just a little bit earlier in talking about electricity, the connection between the ways that people in this period um, in early America were experiencing earthquakes and the ways that they were experiencing science, early American science more broadly. And the next chapter really takes us into that and takes us into a context that you call vernacular science. So this really looks at what's happening with earthquakes in this larger frame of early American vernacular science. Now, you mention here in this chapter that historians have largely have largely failed to notice this part or this this important component of vernacular science in this period because we've been looking for science in the wrong places. And so let's take a moment to actually look in the right places, as you do in this chapter, and talk a little bit about how vernacular science was being practiced among people who are experiencing these earthquakes and then trying to make sense of them in this um, context. So you talk about the importance of um, specifically three components of the practice of earthquake science and vernacular earthquake science in particular among um, people in this period. And those include letters and newspapers that are creating these networks of correspondence. You talk about the importance of material objects. And also you talk about the importance of small-scale informal experimentation by people who are trying to understand these earthquakes. So could you, um, in you know whatever way that you find most interesting and exciting, talk a little bit about any aspect of this context. Vernacular science in early 19th century America, the practice thereof, and how that was engaged with um, the way people were trying to understand these earthquakes. So our standard story about science in early America is what science? You know, there wasn't anything going on. There was just, you know, some people who were good tinkerers and that's all. And um, I think that's baloney. I think there's a whole lot of science and it's in the newspapers. It's not in any kind of anything that we would even remotely recognize like a scientific journal. So what people are doing is exchanging theories and they're exchanging evidence and they collect evidence from each other and they collect evidence from devices. And this was one of the coolest things I was reading in these sources was the variety of ways in which ordinary people figured out they could register the ongoing seismic shocks because there are three, depending on how you count them, maybe four really big quakes in 1811 and 12, but there are quite literally thousands of other shocks that are range from, you know, enough to make you seasick to barely perceptible. And so people would do stuff like take eggs and suspend them on a string from the ceiling so they could see them oscillate if the room started to sway. A couple of people would get, um, a lot of people did this in a small scale way of getting some sort of spring and mounting it so that it would jiggle If there was a seismic motion that was maybe too fine to be felt by a person who was moving, 
Mm-hmm. And a couple of very scientifically minded, quite devoted people with, I must believe, very, very patient spouses <laughs> would devote whole rooms of their small dwellings to um, different kinds of pendulums and springs of different sizes and weights so that they could see if there were shocks. I mean, they were developing this whole notion of shocks that would have different directionality or different intensity, shocks that were more side to side, shocks that were more east, west or north, south, shocks that were more up and down. And there are a couple different cases of very detailed, just incredibly exhaustive registers of what kinds of pendulum or spring would be moving at what point, both you know, in, in 1811 and then into and quite on ways into 1812. And this, I think, gives us a real different sense of, of, what it, of, of the intellectual life of the early 19th century. But I want to make the case that the early United States was really quite an intellectual place and was a it was a really lively scientific environment. And I think that just as people's lives entwined the scientific and the religious and the commercial and the the territorial and the military, so too did their theorizing. That what we modern people tend to look for is science taken apart from everything else. And I think that's a real ahistorical way to look for science um, in the past. And in fact, this chapter does, I think, a really interesting job in not just contextualizing what's happening in this context within um, sort of a larger frame of an interest in geological science in the early 19th century, but also looking specifically at the ways that Americans in this period brought a kind of patriotic interest um, to knowing about the geology of the continent and also brought a larger interest in uh, simultaneity and timing and the measurement thereof to um, you know, these rooms full of pendulums and vibrators and these bowls full of molasses that would slosh or not over the side. And so I think it's a really interesting material culture, but also um, sort of in- intellectual contextualization of what's going on there. Thank you. <laughs> So after we have this very rich, very full account of what was actually happening in this period, we turn to a really fascinating chapter that looks at the process of forgetting. So chapter six looks at the ways that in one of my favorite sentences in the book, the sunk lands became a topography of doubt. So by the late 19th century, as you put it um, in the book, and as you describe here, the New Madrid earthquakes had almost disappeared from popular knowledge and scientific investigation. And this chapter explores some of the many reasons why this happened. So there are a lot of things going on here. So I'll start by asking you um, to talk a little bit about one of them social change in this area. There was a really dramatic change in the society of um, the people who were living in this area. How did that contribute to um, this sort of culture of forgetting or this topography of doubt um, that arises after the earthquakes? In real simple terms, anybody with any knowledge of the earthquakes left. I tailed it out of there, right? Got out of town. That's what happened to a lot of the early emigrant Indian communities that were in the area. And that's what a lot of the white Americans did as well. Mm-hmm. Great. A number of things that happen in so what part of the reason I spent so many chapters saying these earthquakes happened and they mattered is that there is a profound denial of these earthquakes by the late 19th century. Some of what happens is that other stuff takes place on the same terrain and overwrites 
historical knowledge of them. So as any Civil War buff will tell you, the Battle of Island Number 10 takes place in the Mississippi River just um, upstream a little bit from New Madrid. And it is a pivotal battle in the effort, the successful effort by the Union to wrest control of the Mississippi away from the Confederacy. It's a dramatic battle. It involves um, digging canals as well as using steamboats. And um, it makes for a great story. It made for great illustrations. And nobody at the time or later notices that the whole reason why there's this Confederate fortification that's really well easy to defend because it's kind of got these swamps and natural moats around it. Well, those swamps were created by earthquakes. The Union has to, with the labor of its soldiers and the so-called contrabands, that is people who'd freed themselves from slavery and were helping the Union cause, they have to dig canals to get men and munition downstream of this Confederate um, holdout. And they're digging swamps through earthquake territory. Mm-hmm. So part of what happens is by 1870, there's a spot that everybody knows is Island Number 10. Everybody knows it's a battlefield. And the fact that the battle was was the conditions of its possibility were created by earthquakes is nowhere. Mm-hmm. So what had been in 1805, a multilingual, multi-ethnic, highly mobile, multi-use terrain becomes by the late 19th century a black and white environment of monocrop agriculture. And that happens in part through the clearing of a lot of the original landscape, um, through the creation of uh, so-called swamp railroads and swamp timbering, as a few very powerful developers use, uh, you know, put in narrow-gauge railways and um, timber, a lot of the old-growth forest in the region. And it also happens through um, a massive set of environmental changes that that are talked about and planned for and then really get going uh, in the 19-teens, which is a, a huge drainage project to take the sunk lands and make them into, you know, can, can, put canals through them and drainage ditches and make them into drained agricultural land. Mm-hmm. So by the 1920s, there are fewer places in the world better to grow cotton than that former earthquake territory. Mm-hmm. But what had been a memory of, you know, and, and that meant that there was very little memory of earthquake territory left on that terrain. Now, you also in this chapter talk about um, the, a change in the nature of seismology that affects this kinds of transformation as well. So in addition to a sort of shift in seismological focus to the West Coast, you talk in this chapter about what I found to be a really fascinating case of Jesuit scientists and networks that are related to what's happening um, in the understanding of these new Madrid earthquakes. Can you talk a little bit about the Jesuit connection here? Because it's a really fascinating, I think, part of the story. One of the really interesting things here is that the Jesuits in the Mississippi Valley are key to insisting in the early 20th century that there's something going on with, new, with Mississippi Valley seismicity. And they try very, very hard. And there's a key figure, um, Father Mack, uh, James McElwain, who you're, anybody who does geology listening to this will recognize the name, is very influential in trying to institute a kind of California-style seismo- seismograph network in the Mississippi Valley. And he, he gets some, but not never as much as he wants. And it's never enough to be completely um, uh, indicative. And in fact, in one um, 
both tragic and completely hilarious episode. There is actually the paper on the roller of the seismograph is being changed right when one of these very rare earthquakes hits in the 1930s. And so you could just imagine people who spent decades of their lives trying to capture this phenomenon and the one moment where they can't do it is when it happens. So the one of the, but the larger change that I describe is how it is that jaggedy lines on uh, on a side on a machine are earthquake evidence and stories like that of William Lee Pierce or like that of Indian prophets aren't earthquake evidence. So for reasons that are military and reasons that have to do with environmental change and have to do with demographic change and have to do with differences in what counts as scientific evidence earthquakes that had been matter-of-factly accepted back when Davy Crockett and his dogs were hunting in West Tennessee in the early 19th century become completely made into folktale by the late 19th and the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But you know what's interesting is that those that's, that instrumental record, which is so important for delegitimizing these earthquakes as a scientific object, also <laughs> is crucial to how they come back into scientific visibility just really recently, you know, last 10, 15 years. Chapter seven. That's right. Wonderful. So let's talk about that. Wonderful, wonderful segue. Um, So chapter seven actually looks at this um, really natural progression in what you just described and in this story, or rather it doesn't maybe seem like a natural progression, but in our conversation, (laughs) so chapter seven, the science of deep history looks at how and why interest in these new Madrid earthquakes reemerges along with a really different approach to the kinds of evidence that count and the way earthquake science is done in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. So can you talk a little bit more about that since we've sort of started to get there? What was happening and why did interest reemerge and why is that important for our understanding of the larger context of earthquake science in this later period? So the the final chapter of this book and of the current chapter in earthquake science has to do with what's called paleoseismology. And that's a multidisciplinary team effort of combining archaeology and dendrochronology, that's you know, tree ring kind of studies, um, and uh, the study of soils and the study of seismic movement to understand seismic events that take place well before the written historical record. So basically, well, one of the things that comes down to is um, you get an NSF grant and you get a backhoe (laughs) and you go dig a huge trench in somebody's cotton farm, which let me tell you is really an interesting endeavor. And then they look at the side of this trench to say, can we see evidence of this this, uh, phenomenon of liquefaction I mentioned earlier? Can we see evidence of this white sand coming up through the soil that we know means that there was seismic movement here and powerful seismic movement? So I'm interested in how the... There are instrumental records of these quakes, but that that's not the only way in which these quakes are made into a legitimate scientific event again. The other way in which that happens is that seismologists start acting like historians. They start going back and saying, wait a minute, there are all these old newspaper records. There are all these old you know, pieces of crinkly paper with stories on them. Maybe we should be reading those. Maybe we can find out information that is useful in our present terms about where the quakes were felt or what they did. 
And so these earthquakes that were quite literally denied, I mean, they were a punchline for much of the 20th century. And there was a whole you know, earthquake scare in 1990 when a man named Ibn Browning predicted an earthquake that didn't happen um, that made them sort of even more um, ridiculous for a whole lot of people in that same context. And right after that is when a lot of serious researchers begin against a lot of skepticism on the part of the public and of their colleagues to insist that, you know, there really is something to these stories of Mississippi Valley earthquake after all. Now, one of the things that we talked about um, very briefly uh, a little bit earlier on before we actually started the interview was something that pertains to this part of the book. And you mentioned um, when we were kind of getting warmed up how wonderful it was to work with some of the scientists that you were able to work with when putting together material for the book. And that seems particularly germane to what's happening here in this um, last body chapter of the book. So would you want to talk about that a little bit? What was your experience working with scientists as a historian in this book, and how did that shape the way you thought about the project? So it's an experience of great... I have great respect for their patience because I would call these people up and say, hi, you don't know me. And I don't know much about your field. Can I come in and ask you very basic questions about your scientific work, please? And they would say, yes, sure. Come on down. See you in my office in 20 minutes. So I have a whole lot of respect for a lot of my colleagues. And in particular, a tremendous amount of respect for the efforts of our, our federal agencies at USGS and the state geological surveys for trying very earnestly to do two things that are not always easy to combine. And one is do cutting level research that tells us about the way the world works and simultaneously translate that into terms that the rest of us can understand. So one of the things that makes me proud to be an American and to be a taxpayer and citizen and voter is to log on to the USGS website and look at the wealth of information that is available there. So the U.S. Geological Survey has available online to you and me and anyone else who cares to look at it more information about the way the world works than has been available to most people in the history of the globe until now. And it's really quite, I mean, it's, it's frankly inspiring. And one, and I, I, I found it really interesting to see the efforts of my colleagues in the sciences to be putting together a contentious history and to be interpreting it all at once. And so a lot of the latter part of this book, I chronicle debates over the New Madrid earthquakes. Are they really as bad as California quakes? Were there really that many of them? Are they really that big? Were there really that many of them in the deep past? Because that's one of the surprises of paleoseismology is, you know, those 1811, 1812 events are not the only ones to have shaken the Mississippi Valley. There are many sequences of earthquakes that have done so over the past several thousand years, which, if you are living in that region, is quite a sobering thought. So I look at the the attempts by largely governmental scientists to do research and talk about its public impact almost at one and the same moment. And I know how hard that is to do. And it's been really interesting for me to, even over the course of the time I was writing this book, to see changes in the science and how the the scientists involved in that were struggling, I think, very successfully to try to incorporate that into their public presentations um, very, very swiftly. 
And in fact, you actually talk about the possibility of the emergence of a new vernacular science in this part of the book, including, but not limited to, um, the use of sensing bodies of people and animals, which is still contested, but which I have to mention because it allows me to say the word seismometers, <laughs> <laughs> i.e. Uh, the use of cow bodies to sense. Um, so just so that listeners got that. Size meters. <laughs> yes, you heard correctly. Um, so maybe as we come to the the end of the book, um, could you talk a little bit about that? This so the importance of the emergence of a new vernacular science, and how does that change or um, impact, or how should it impact the way we understand and engage sci- uh, contemporary science and its history right now? I think there are a whole lot of questions that are opened up that are both literal, physical, scientific questions about, okay, what's going on and how do we sense it? And that are also, I think, in a larger sense, prompt us to ask about how do we know what we know? So one of the things I point out is that in North America, in Asia, in Europe, most agricultural people who live for very long periods around very large numbers of domesticated animals talk about how animals act funny before a quake. And there are, you know, different stories about different kinds of animals and what they do. And it's nowhere is there a particularly um, um, is there a particularly culturally consistent way of talking about this. But there, there's a there's a real sense that animals act funny right before earthquakes. And this is something that earnest scientists in many parts of the world have tried really hard to research and without a whole lot of success. This is where the seismometers come in and get involved. <laughs> And part of what I ask as someone who's been watching this science change and grow over the past few years is what does it mean for hardworking people in the sciences in the early 21st century to take seriously some of the suggested evidence of deeply agricultural country people of many hundreds of years in many places? And I'm very interested in in where our science will go. Right and how um, local people's knowledge and their observations about animals, for instance, may indeed begin to inform our earthquake sciences in more lasting ways. Well, Canaveri, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. It's a, an extraordinarily rich book, and we didn't have time to even barely scratch the surface of all of the wonderful material that's in here. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and maybe especially um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? I mentioned at the very beginning that I changed my perspective on this in an airplane. (laughs) Right. Let me just tell you real briefly about that, because I got to fly in an airplane. I end the book there, so it's appropriate I'll end the interview there. Fly in an airplane that a friend of mine piloted looking for earthquake evidence, looking for some of the kinds of changes to terrain that people like William Lee Pierce and Davy Crockett had written about, and I'd read it. And what was fascinating to me was that I and my friends in the plane, single-engine prop plane, flying above the Mississippi Valley floodplains when I lived out near there, we couldn't see anything. We looked and looked and looked, and I was getting so depressed, and they were trying to help me with this book, and we couldn't see anything. And then we had a realization, more or less simultaneously, that these white splotches that were everywhere underneath us in the agricultural ground below the plain were exactly what we were looking for. They were evidence of these massive Mississippi Valley quakes, but there were so many of them. They were so large and they were so widespread that we had all 
assumed that they couldn't possibly be the obscure evidence we were looking for. And it was that moment in that airplane with that single best use of research money I've ever spent, which was to buy that tank of gas for that airplane, I realized that this could not be the book I'd set out to write, a a history of just of the early 19th century. It had to be a history of how we see events in the past and how we can choose not to see them. Fabulous. Well, so now that the book is out, now that we're seeing the events of this past, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you right now? I'm really interested in mid-continent fracking, and in particular in the relationship that many local people argue between fracking and low-level seismicity, uh, earthquake swarms, particularly in Arkansas. So I'm real interested in people's experience of that, in how they're explaining it, and um, in how contemporary geological bodies are investigating um, what's happening Um, with the injection wells related to fracking and um, small-scale seismic swarms. Great. Well, best of luck with that research, Canaveri. Thank you so much again for making the time to talk with me, and congratulations on a really fantastic book. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carla. The pleasure's mine. You take care. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.